Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Assume nothing. Rash, bald-faced blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts. 
losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. Our broadcast today is brought to you by Evolve Fish. Dot com rolling out a brand new website this week. It's a brand new look for them. Had to have been a huge undertaking because their website's pretty deep with all those products and all those pages. But they've got a brand new interface, brand new look. I had a chance to check out the beta of it, and it should release either today or tomorrow. If you haven't ever been to EvolveFish.com, you'll know if you're looking at the old or the new because the older site is bordered in blue. The new one is bordered in charcoal black. And of course, all kinds of apparel and emblems, jewelry, stickers, buttons, novelties, stuff like the sticker that says, God loves you, some restrictions apply. They've got the emblem of the T-Rex eating the Jesus fish, buttons that say stuff like, keep your rosaries off my ovaries, the license plate frame that says 100% deity free, and the Jesus crust t-shirt. Or Jesus is holding a pizza. Wear that at Christmas dinner and see what happens. (laughs) Anyway, say it with style, say it with sarcasm and a little irreverence. And check out the new shopping site unveiled this week at EvolveFish.com. You might remember a few months ago we did a charity fundraiser for the Foundation Beyond belief. From time to time throughout the year, it's always nice to come together and pick out a worthy cause, a a, a charity that's not driven by a religious agenda and that is genuinely helping people. Foundation Beyond Belief, a perfect choice. And so we did a fundraiser and raised well over 10 grand for them. And Dale McGowan, the executive director, wanted to thank all of you. And he asked me, what's the best way to do that? And I told Dale, just write a letter, man, and I'll read it here on the radio to our listeners. And so he sent me a short letter that says this. It said, there's a lot to love about my job running Foundation Beyond Belief, but nothing is more rewarding than seeing the generosity of the secular community unleashed in a hundred ways. I see that every day in the commitment of our members to the charities they support and of our volunteer teams as they give thousands of hours to improve their communities. But given that daily dose of humanist generosity, the amazing gesture of support by Seth Andrews and his fans and friends was simply overwhelming to me. When Seth told me about his plan to ask his listeners to channel their well wishes for his and Natalie's wedding into a gift for Foundation Beyond Belief, I was moved beyond words. And knowing the high regard in which Seth is rightly held by our community, I knew the response would be a big one. But I was still unprepared for the level it reached, an astonishing $13,496 from 466 donors. This would have been a stunning gift at any time. But as it happened, it arrived at a crucial moment for us, just as we were working feverishly to get the Humanist Service Corps in place for our July 25th launch in Ghana. And knowing it came from the hearts of humanists, as a tribute to Seth and Natalie made it all the more powerful. Deepest thanks to Seth and Natalie for the idea, and to each and every one of the donors of that extraordinary gift for making it real. Dale McGowan. Thank you so much, Dale, for writing that beautiful letter. It's awesome to come together and 
do stuff like this from time to time. It's a little bit of a balancing act because I don't want to do so many that they all become a blur. You know, you just become numb to them. Oh, look, it's another charity every five minutes, that kind of thing. But a couple of times a year, two, three times a year, we'll find an event, an occasion, an opportunity to give. We come together and do something amazing, and then we get to feel really good about it. So thank you for supporting that gesture and for making that drive a huge success and all our best to the Foundation Beyond Belief for 2015. The title of today's show is Please Read This on the Air. And our listeners have just submitted random stuff for your humble host to read on the radio. We've got some personal stories in here. We've got some original works or poems. We've got writings from famous authors, even an article from The Onion is in the mix. We had over 65, 67 email submissions. No way we're going to be able to get to even a heavy fraction of those, just be a few. But I've selected some for broadcast today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Our first email is from Sarah. She said, I'm a 34-year-old Canadian woman born in Iran. Today, I'm sad that my grandfather passed away over the weekend. He was between 102 and 108 the village he was born in did not keep records back then, and, well, nobody remembers him being born anymore. Last time I visited, my only time, in 2010, we had whiskey together. I missed out on his presence and my grandmother's growing up because my parents took me away from a religiously fundamentalist country for the safety and sanity of our family so I could grow up and do something as crazy as ride a bicycle and make stupid decisions while growing up, stupid decisions that wouldn't lead to my death. The complicated nature of our leaving meant we couldn't return for visits until more than 20 years later. Today, I'm angry that religion exists. I'm angry people fall for it. I'm angry the world doesn't have enough critical thinking skills to wonder why God would want small children to clear landmines or women to be flogged for showing skin. The lack of thinking skills is bewildering. Why would you give men dominion over women when history has shown over and over again that power corrupts? I get that people get comfort from religion, comfort from not coming up with their own strategies of maneuvering their mortality, but that comfort they get from not thinking for themselves comes at a price, and I'm paying a small price of it right now. Sarah, thanks for the message. Eric says, I heard somewhere that there's a time and place for everything. It's called college. Back in my early 20s, I'd come home from work on a Friday, smoked a little funny cigarette, grilled a steak, baked a potato, made some green beans, popped open a cold beer, turned on some Jimi Hendrix, and sat down to enjoy a most pleasant dinner when the doorbell rang. I opened the door to find two guys with a Bible in hand. This kind of thing happens in Kentucky quite a bit. They asked me if I could spare a moment of time. Now, as far as I was concerned, I was in church when they rang the doorbell. However, I opened the door wide so they could see my dinner and cold beer sitting on my coffee table, and they could hear my Hendrix playing. And then I looked at them and said, Sure, if you don't mind allowing me a moment of your time in return. They happily agreed. They started telling me the usual stuff, and I listened to them for a few minutes, but eventually I had to interrupt them. 
I started by explaining that we all come from 46 chromosomes, 23 from mom, 23 from dad, and that these chromosomes produce only five senses, not 10, not 20, just five. That is a limit to our capabilities. Those chromosomes produce a brain that weighs approximately three pounds, not five, not 10. This is another limit. I then went on to explain why it is we actually see things. I said, you see that car over there? And they said, yes. I asked them if they knew why they saw it. And they looked puzzled. I said, well, that car is being hit by photons, light, most of which come from our sun. Some of the photons, blue wavelength ones in this case, bounce off the car and fly into your eyeball. Now, when they hit the back of your eyeball, there's some chemistry that takes place as certain receptors fire up and send a message to other receptors. And then they communicate with other receptors. This happens several times before reaching the visual cortex in the brain. I demonstrated where that region is. Then your brain fires up and tries to make sense of the information it just received. Eventually, your brain forms an opinion about this information, and you conclude, blue car. There are a few problems with this whole scenario. For starters, it takes a certain amount of time for the photons to travel the distance from the car to your eye. Sure, it's a very short amount of time, but it's not instant. So, this means we are not seeing the car as it is. Instead, we are seeing the car as it was a short time ago. Furthermore, when the photon hits the back of the eye and there's a chemical reaction, energy is lost in the form of heat. Energy is lost with every reaction along the way to the brain. And it takes even more time. So the information the brain receives is not only out of date, it's not complete. Energy is lost even more as the brain itself tries to understand the information. So, to sum it up, we have a limited number of senses with which to gather information. We have a limited-sized brain with which to make sense of the limited information. We do not see the car as it is. We see it as it was. And the opinion our brain forms about it is based on incomplete information due to losses along the way. The best we can ever have is a fuzzy kind of comprehension. We cannot know anything with absolute certainty. At this point, they looked a little put out <laughs> and wished they'd never stopped at my door. But I wasn't going to let them leave just yet. I said... This reality doesn't apply to vision only. It applies to all of our senses. We can never accurately discern any smell or flavor or sound or feeling. So, if we can't accurately discern the blue car across the street, I'm fairly certain that the will of God or the nature of God cannot be accurately discerned either. And to their credit, they didn't give up, as I thought they would. Instead, one of them brought up something about morality coming from God. I said, look, that's a load of crap. Let me explain. Entropy is a great constant, the tendency for things to go from an organized state to a disorganized state. It's very easy to destroy things, contributing to entropy. But it's very hard to build and maintain things, resisting entropy. For example, if you don't like that building over there, go set it on fire and it'll be gone quickly. I'm not endorsing arson. I was just using this as an example to illustrate a point, obviously. 
However, if you do like that building, I challenge you to keep and maintain it. The more time goes by, the harder and more expensive it becomes to maintain. The same can be said about our lives. I said, I enjoy being alive. I love it. And I'm going to resist entropy as best I can in an effort to keep living. This means I'll take care of myself, of course, but it also means I'll take care of those around me. If I want to shorten my life, I could do that easily. I could go around lying, cheating, stealing, and killing. If I did those things, I could be pretty sure that other people would stop me, maybe even kill me. But short of that, I suspect I'd create a rather miserable existence for myself, and that seems pointless to a person who enjoys being alive and looks forward to waking up every day. So it just makes sense to me that I shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, or kill. And I don't need some big invisible guy in the sky by and by to tell me this. It just makes sense in the first place. So I disagree with you. I don't think morals and morality come from God. I think they come from an innate sense of wanting to live a long and happy life. They were ready to go at this point and thanked me for my time, and I thanked them for theirs. But I added one parting shot before they left. At the time, I was a mathematics major and was doing fairly well at it. I said, Guys, I know where your church is, and if I have any questions for you, I'll go there and ask you, so you don't really need to stop by here anymore. But you should know I'm pretty good at calculus. I won't be going to your church to teach people calculus. However, if you have any calculus questions, you know where I live, and you're welcome to stop by any time. I'll help you if I'm able. I went over to my CD player and restarted the Hendrix album and returned to my cold dinner and warm beer. Strangely enough, it was a very satisfying meal, as I recall. Thanks for all you do. Long may you run, Eric. Eric, thanks for sharing an awesome story. Susan sent me a link to something that had been posted by the Rationalist Society of Australia called An Open Letter to Bill Nye, the Science Guy. Now, this is dated August of this year, but it um, actually is posting a letter that came out in February in advance of the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham at the Creation Museum. So the letter's a little bit dated, but I thought the response, the open letter, was so entertaining that it's sort of timeless. I'll go ahead and read it for you almost a year later. The open letter says this, Dear Bill... We're sorry. We're really sorry. We know how you American rationalists think of us Aussies. You think we're all so busy clinging on to the bottom of the world with our fingertips that we don't have time to waste concerning ourselves with silly creationist ideas. That we're a haven of straightforward, logical thinking, secular education, free health care, and good-looking, half-clothed beach bunnies. But we're really sorry, Bill. Ken Ham is our fault, and it's time we took responsibility for him. We, the people of Australia, have allowed our zealots to escape to your fair shores. It's not just Ham, either. Fine specimens like Gary Bates, who left for the forgiving climes of Georgia, still manages to send his tentacled pods back over the Pacific and feed our kids rubbish about how the Earth is only 6,000 years old. 
a particular head-scratcher for our indigenous population whose families have been here since 50,000 BCE. I mean, talk about breathtakingly rude. We've been slack, Bill. Our practically secular society let us get complacent. We didn't notice years ago when the scripture classes that had slid in sideways last century were commandeered by proselytizing evangelicals who set about making disciples of our children. We let slide our government handing over wads of tax dollars to create a raft of fundamentalist religious schools that teach kids the kind of hogwash that you'll have to endure from Ken Ham in your debate. In fact, Bill, just this week, when Professor Marion Maddox nailed a copy of her exemplary new book, Taking God to School, to our doors, it was a stark reminder of just how much we'd let our secularish, sunburnt paradise go. And now any attempt to reverse the process has been met with squealing about our Christian heritage from people who often don't understand either Christianity or heritage. To our shame, decades of preoccupation with things like Olympic medal tallies and football players has made Australia into the typhoid Mary of creationism. We were rubbishing America for its anti-evolutionists and didn't even notice that we were the ones exporting young earth evangelism to your great nation, where unfortunately there is no tariff on craziness. We are so, so sorry. So on Tuesday, when you're roasting the ham and his patently ridiculous ideas on the rotisserie of logic, tell him you've got a message from Australia. Tell him from us that we used his state-issued Akubra hat to cover a hole in the National Chook House Shed, that he is no longer entitled to use his formal Australian name, Kenno, and that he has now forbidden any Tim Tams ever again. I've got to look this stuff up, by the way. Also, that whenever his name comes up at Christmas, while we sit around drinking white wine in the sun, there will be a formal, awkward silence of 20 to 40 seconds, until someone brightly offers everyone pudding. And if you could manage to kick him in the shins and tell him and his ilk to leave our kids alone, Bill, we'd owe you one. Best regards, the Secular Coalition of Australia. On behalf of the sensible people of Australia, P.S. We take no responsibility for Ray Comfort. He's a Kiwi. I love you people. It's not just that I'm coming down with the Unholy Trinity Tour to see you this March. I love you. I love that razor-sharp wit. That's just awesome. I think humor is one of the best defenses we have against insanity out there. Anyway, uh, thanks for submitting that. Bryant said this. He said, I discovered your show when I was a sophomore in high school. I'd shed my former faith the previous summer, and your show gave me a break from all the religion that surrounded me. I live in a small town in rural Missouri where there's literally a church on every street corner. Religion seems to seep into everything in this town, from sporting events to school clubs and even the classrooms sometimes. Your show has been cathartic for me, to say the least. The podcast was, however, more than just a place to hear others discuss skepticism and poke fun at some of the crazier aspects of religion. It was the first podcast I discovered. Before I started listening, I had no idea that podcasts even existed. After I found your show, I fell in love with radio. 
and began consuming voraciously all of the content I could find on the Internet. From education-based shows like yours to comedy shows, like the infamous Opie and Anthony and Howard Stern, there's something about the theater of the mind aspect of radio that's unlike anything else out there. And it's really captured my interest. I'm a freshman in college now and am seriously considering changing my major and entering the radio business. So I just want to thank you for everything you do. It was your show and you personally that inspired me to get into radio. I think you're doing a great thing with your podcast. It would be awesome to see you branch out into subjects other than atheism, which I've heard you mention as a possibility in another show. But anyway, this leads me to my question, which is simply this. Is radio a dying industry? Is it even worth going to broadcast school, or am I better off buying a microphone and starting my own podcast? I listen to the Opie and Anthony show quite often, and one thing they love to do is criticize what regular radio has become. They even set aside the month of October to make fun of hacky morning zoo shows all over the country. They call it Jocktober. And it's shown me just how crappy a lot of radio shows are. Everybody has to have a fake radio voice and rely on services like Prep Burger, companies who sell stations prepackaged radio bits that are unoriginal and unfunny. They also talk about the way corporations have ruined FM radio like they ruined AM radio, and that the industry is dying a quick death thanks to things like the internet. I figured that since you spent so many years in the industry, you probably have an informed take on the subject. What advice can you give to someone like me who wants to get into the radio business, Bryant? I can give you my opinion. I don't know if it's an expert opinion, but I would wager that many people who are either in the corporate radio industry now or have done so in the past will probably be nodding their heads when I tell you one of the reasons that I left radio, full-time radio, was because it was a dying business. Dying in a couple of senses, actually. Back then, I was watching full-time radio legends in my city, people who had served this city for decades of their lives and were popular. Get pink slips, right? So they're in their 40s, 50s, early 60s, and they're getting laid off because it's much cheaper to just pipe something in or pre-record it automated via computer. Right? Why pay a full-time salary with benefits to a tenured personality when you can pipe in Valentine in the morning who's on KISS FM in 75 cities? Same show. Just insert the call letters in each individual town and look how much money you save, right? Or you can get some guy who's automating a show, pre-recording it out of his bedroom for a few hundred bucks a month. You don't have to pay him a salary. don't have to pay him benefits. You have complete control over what he does. Everything's pre-recorded. So many of the studios right now, FM radio studios, are just dark. If you walk into the radio station itself, the lights are off and the computers are just running. The shows are all set. And if you hear someone say the time or the weather, any of that stuff, it still doesn't mean that they're doing it live. I've done my share of automating for radio in the past. Many of those shows were cut the night before. 
10.07 on the clock, 71 degrees on our way to a high of 82 today. Chance of showers by the weekend. Hey, don't forget about Concert X on Saturday. Going to be a great time. We'll be out there with the so-and-so van. We'll be giving away free t-shirts. And, of course, you get a chance to win our secret song contest. You get to qualify for either a brand new Dodge Charger or a Chick-fil-A sandwich. That'll be this coming weekend. Don't miss it. That kind of stuff. Well, you don't have to be in the studio to do it. You don't even have to live in that city to do it. And the internet is, in many ways, spelling the death of FM radio. Why would somebody listen to a playlist they can't control in 17 commercial units an hour when they can populate their own playlist on their terms and listen whenever and wherever they want? The internet has given control back to the listener. It has also given people who might not be attractive to a corporate radio giant somewhere the opportunity to just start up a grassroots radio show and swing for the fences and see what happens. I would encourage you, do not, do not get a four-year degree in broadcasting. Do not get a four-year degree in broadcasting. Most of the people who got into radio and many of the people got into TV Their degrees were either in something else or they don't have a degree at all. They got an entry-level job, learned it by doing it and by being mentored from other broadcasters, and all the stuff they learned in college was already obsolete by the time they did their first radio show. Do not get a four-year degree. I mean, unless you're going to be like a meteorologist or a specialist in some way. I mean, I totally buy that. But many of the people who are simply prompter readers or liner card readers, they're just personalities, pretty faces, pretty voices that sort of got the job. And you'll notice in the corporate radio world, they are almost always instantly replaceable, right? If they are not in that chair, in the host chair tomorrow, there's a real good chance the audience goes, oh, really? They're, uh, they're gone? Who, what was their name again, right? Uh, who's on now? Oh, as long as they play my music, I'm good. That's how broadcasting is treated. So unless you're specializing, my recommendation is get a degree in another field that has some communications in it, but do not get a broadcasting degree. I would go the podcast route. Now, granted, you're a needle in a stack of needles. I mean, there's so many podcasts out there. But if you've got something to say and you've got a compelling way to say it, why not? Why not? crank up a show and see what sticks. Anyway, forgive the long answer. It's kind of a sensitive nerve with me, you know. So another piece of advice I often give people is you got to make sure that it's okay to be yourself and that people will not think you're an asshole. Be yourself for some people is not good advice, but if being yourself is something you think that a radio audience would enjoy, that might be something that's worth pursuing. All my best in your endeavors. Katie from Italy said, this is an absolutely true story. It happened about two weeks ago, and I'm still reeling. Here in Italy, religion is a way of life for many people. Most people say they don't believe in any of it when you're in private. But in front of grandma, everyone is a God-fearing Catholic with a Bible in the glove box just in case. Recently, I was in line at ACI. It's our version of the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, I suppose, because I had to buy a sticker to put in my car to make it legal for me to drive on the Autostrada in Austria, a little thing called a vignette. 
The little grandma behind me, after hearing me on the phone for a moment speaking to my husband in English, decided to strike up a conversation with me. She was sweet, smelled like home cooking, smiling kindly at me like any grandmother affectionately would. She asked me where I was from, told me about a U.S. Army paratrooper that she'd met in World War II when she was very little and how she longed to know his name because he was so handsome told me about her Fiat 500 from the late 1960s and how she loved to drive it. After waiting in line for 20 minutes or so, talking back and forth like old friends, she took my arm and asked me where I went to church and if I loved God. I knew I'd never see her again, so I said that I used to be an Episcopalian in the USA and that I'd not found a church that I liked here in Italy yet not wanting her to die of heartbreak after hearing of my apostasy and atheism. She smiled warmly and told me about her church, and how she was the choir director, and how she thought I would have a lovely singing voice, and how she would love it if I sang for her. The line crept forward. My turn was next. She thanked me ever so much for keeping her company, as Italians don't treat their elderly with respect anymore. And that cadre old bat caught in front of me and took my turn. (laughs) She schmoozed me for a half an hour, spread me thin like a little bit of butter on too much warm bread. She even had time to bring God into the conversation right before she shanked me. And that's not all. She took about 20 minutes to do what she needed to do and then turned to me as she was leaving and winked. She fucking winked at me like a politician. (laughs) You know what? I'm done being a good person. Totally over it. I was worked by an 80-year-old woman. My life would have been so much better had there been an 11th commandment in the Bible, Thou shalt not be a dick no matter how old you are. Happy Thanksgiving week, Kate in Italy. Thanks for a very entertaining story. Ara sent me a Facebook post that's been flying around. It says, The entire Bible explained in one Facebook post, this guy nails it. Now, I don't know how long this has been around, but it reads like this, and I don't know if it translates verbally to radio, If you want to look it up, you can see it's a visual gag. It says this, Holy Bible, the TL semicolon DR version, too long didn't read. Holy Bible, the too long didn't read version. Genesis, God says, all right, you two, don't do the one thing. Other than that, have fun. Adam and Eve say, okay. Satan says, you should do the thing. Adam and Eve, okay. God says, what happened? We did the thing. Guys, the rest of the Old Testament, God says, you are my people and you should not do the things. The people say, we won't do the things. Good. We did the things. Guys, the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm the Son of God and even though you've done the things, the Father and I still love you and want you to live. Don't do the things anymore. And the healed people said, Okay, thank you. And other people said, We've never seen him do the things, but he probably does the things when no one's looking. Jesus said, I've never done the things. 
Other people said, we're going to put you on trial for doing the things. Pilate, did you do the things? Jesus, no. Pilate said he didn't do the things. Other people said, kill him anyway. Pilate says, all right. Jesus says, guys, Paul's letters, we did the thing, said the people. (laughs) Paul said, Jesus still loves you, and because you love him, you have to stop doing the things. The people said, okay. Paul's letters, part two. The people, we did the things again. Paul said, guys. (laughs) And finally, Revelation. John said, when Jesus comes back, there will be no more people who do the things. In the meantime, stop doing the things. The end. Again, it's kind of a visual gag. I guess you got to be able to see it. It's hard for me to translate it verbally. Several people ask me to read Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot on the radio. I will not. And the reason is, is because I am convinced that Pale Blue Dot should only be heard in Carl Sagan's voice. You either set the standard or you're compared to the standard. And we've all heard the recordings of Sagan reading that work aloud. I will not read the pale blue dot when his words covered it so well. Mike said this, I think this is a great idea for an episode. I have something I don't think has been read on the air. But then again, this is so good, probably somebody else has already sent it. It's Hitchens' letter to the American Atheist Convention in 2011. It comes in at a little over a page. Now, Hitchens is another one that I'm hesitant to try to do justice to any of his written material. You know, I hear his voice. We all hear his voice. But as Hitch is no longer with us, I'll uh, read the letter that he presented to the American Atheist Convention in 2011. I believe this was shortly before his death. Dear fellow unbelievers, nothing would have kept me from joining you except the loss of my voice, at least my speaking voice which in turn is due to a long argument I'm currently having with the specter of death. Nobody ever wins this argument, though there are some solid points to be made while the discussion goes on. I've found, as the enemy becomes more familiar, that all the special pleading for salvation, redemption, and supernatural deliverance appears even more hollow and artificial to me than it did before. I hope to help defend and pass on the lessons of this for many years to come, But for now, I found my trust better placed in two things, the skill and principle of advanced medical science and the comradeship of innumerable friends and family, all of them immune to the false consolations of religion. It is these forces, among others, which will speed the day when humanity emancipates itself from the mind-forged manacles of servility and superstition. It is our innate solidarity, and not some despotism of the sky, which is the source of our morality and the sense of our decency. That essential sense of decency is outraged every day. Our theocratic enemy is in plain view, protean in form. It extends from the overt menace of nuclear-armed mullahs to the insidious campaigns to have stultifying pseudoscience taught in American schools. But in the past few years, there have been heartening signs of a genuine and spontaneous resistance to this sinister nonsense, a resistance which repudiates the right of bullies and tyrants to make the absurd claim that they have God on their side. To have had a small part in this resistance has been the greatest honor of my lifetime. The pattern and origin of all dictatorship is the surrender of reason to absolutism 
and the abandonment of critical objective inquiry. The cheap name for this lethal delusion is religion, and we must learn new ways of combating it in the public sphere, just as we have learned to free ourselves of it in private. Our weapons are the ironic mind against the literal, the open mind against the credulous, the courageous pursuit of truth against the fearful and abject forces who would set limits to investigation and who stupidly claim that we already have all the truth we need. Perhaps above all, we affirm life over the cults of death and human sacrifice and are afraid not of inevitable death, but rather of a human life that is cramped and distorted by the pathetic need to offer mindless adulation or the dismal belief that the laws of nature respond to wailings and incantations. As the heirs of a secular revolution, American atheists have a special responsibility to defend and uphold the Constitution that patrols the boundary between church and state. This, too, is an honor and a privilege. Believe me when I say that I am present with you, even if not corporeally and only metaphorically in spirit. Resolve to build up Mr. Jefferson's wall of separation and don't keep the faith. Sincerely, Christopher Hitchens. Brian said, I've been a fan for a few months now and I love the program. It really is a treat to listen. You make me think and laugh and we seem to share an almost identical worldview. One of my youth pastors was actually right in the center of the satanic panic and went on Geraldo in disguise as an expert. But that has no real bearing on why I'm writing you today. I'll try to be as brief as possible. I often hear atheists condemning people who homeschool their kids. While I understand where the criticism comes from in the cases where parents want to rear their children by conditioning them to believe lies and reject science, they often, if not always, use a brush too large to paint the picture of people who homeschool. And so I thought I'd set the record straight for atheist parents. 1. Peer Orientation when you remove children from their natural hierarchy, their peers become their role models. Peers don't love other peers as parents or have the interests of their peers, becoming well-educated adults capable of critical thinking in mind. The results lead to what we see in our society of third and fourth generation peer-oriented people. Maturity is nurtured and requires the oversight and attempt of a loving parenting caregiver. Independence is reached through a child's ability to safely depend on their parents. 2. Food. School food is disgusting <laughs> and isn't even food by my definition. It's funny. My little stepdaughter comes home and she's always bitching about the, I guess they've got all these new rules for school lunches. I totally get it. Pizza is categorized as a vegetable in upset. 3. Regimented classroom time. It's a waste of time and violates how we learn to be so regimented. 4. Teacher-student ratio. 30 to 40 to 1 is the typical ratio. Is this supposed to be effective? 5. Bullying. This is a direct result of peer orientation. When another child or adolescent animals are removed from their natural hierarchy, they begin to bully. A study was done with elephants. When removed, a couple of adolescent bull elephants began bullying other elephants and other animals. Upon their return to the family, the bullying stopped. 6. Texas. I live in Texas. Seriously. P. 
people think I should put my kids in a Texas school? No fucking way. Brian, thanks for the message. Arye said this, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and the Unholy Trinity Tour. I'm 28 and was born into an Orthodox Jewish family. I began to question things at around age 15 and became a closet atheist at 20. My close family, parents, and four sisters all moved from the UK to live in Israel five years ago, a praiseworthy to them act of self-sacrifice. They don't know that I do not drink the Kool-Aid anymore. Just last week, my dad surprised me with a visit to my house and saw that I had a Christmas tree. To me, this tree is a symbol of the festive season, one which I hold close to my heart because it means all of the good movies are on TV again. It is not a symbol of my belief in the baby Jesus as our one and true Savior, etc. Actually, the tree is not a symbol of baby Jesus, but I'll continue. My dad turned to me in my own home and told me to get rid of it. No debate, no argument, just to get rid of it. This is the first time I've been angry at my parents for something like this. I've never told them that I'm an atheist, and I'm pretty sure they think I'm just a bit less religious than they are. But based on my dad's reaction to having a plastic plant inside my own living room, I'm now concerned about telling them anything more. The reason that I'm writing to you is because I'd really like some help when it comes to being peer pressured into doing things. I don't mind closing my eyes and mumbling along when people say blessings before and after food. I cover my head when I go around to certain friends' houses. I'll be respectful of their beliefs, provided they do no harm to me. But the real problem is going to begin when I start a family. I'm getting married in June. Congratulations, by the way. I couldn't be happier with my fiancé. We've discussed the possibility of starting a family in a few years' time, but we keep on hitting a wall with what happens if we have a boy. This is a contentious issue. My fiancé is also Jewish, but was brought up a lot less religious than I was. I think that even people who barely consider themselves as Jews still will get their son circumcised. Just one of the things that all Jews do. Please don't cite me on this, but I would think there's data to back it up. But we don't want to. It's inhumane. Genital mutilation carried out in an unsterile environment by someone who may not be qualified to deal with complications. Just because some senile old man may or may not have heard God tell him to chop the end of his penis off, why on earth would I do that to my own son? It will be a failure of ourselves as parents When our son is only eight days old, what sort of parents would we be if we intentionally allowed this to happen, but if we don't allow it? What sort of message is that sending out to my family? We'll always be that couple that didn't even circumcise their son. I can only imagine the nasty things that'll be said around dinner tables and what will happen to my parents when people casually ask them, so how was the party after the circumcision? You guys party after you circumcise? (sighs) I feel it would ruin the relationship that I have with my family, and I don't want that to happen. So I don't mind pretending that I only eat kosher and don't go to work on a Saturday. If that'll keep my family talking to me, all the better. But I don't want to have to cause pain to my baby in order to keep them in the dark 
about my true life. Any help you can provide will be most appreciated. I really don't know who else to ask, Arye. Well, right now, Arye, there's a uh, there's several, probably several tens of thousands of people screaming at the radio right now. And I would wager they're probably saying something along the lines of, It's your life. It's not your father's life. It is not your mother's life. It's not a grandparent's life. It's not a religion's life. It's not a culture's life. It doesn't belong to a geographic location. It doesn't belong to your spouse or soon-to-be spouse. It is yours. And I believe that one of the ways that religion perpetuates itself is to put these kind of consequences in place for those who won't adhere, who stray off the beaten path. If you don't think or act like I do or say you should, I will cut you off. I will treat you differently. I will not give you 100% of my life. I might not give you any of my life, so you better toe the line. What exactly is this? It goes far beyond tradition. What is that famous quote that says, Tradition is a guide, it is not a jailer. I believe healthy tradition, I speak about this in the book that I'm finishing. Tradition can be an amazing thing, a way to sort of frame amazing stuff in our lives, something we can pass on and enjoy if we choose. Tradition can be amazing. But tradition's a guide, it is not a jailer. You are not imprisoned by a tradition set in place by someone else if you believe it is morally wrong or just not appropriate for you or your child. It grieves me that a family you love would essentially declare, I mean, this is what I'm getting from your email, they would declare that they have a greater allegiance to their invisible deity than they do to you, right? Because if you think they would cut you off or penalize you in some way, it tells me that on the priority list, you're down here, God's up there, or their superstition, to be more accurate, right? Your father is more interested in an invisible father than a flesh and blood son. This hurts the heart, man. And I can't tell you how to proceed. I can't tell you how far I think you should go in order to keep the peace. I mean, that's a judgment call that only you can make. But I can encourage you that you are not required to live somebody else's way. Oh, you're Jewish. So what? If it's not right for you or your family, don't do it. I mean, that's my perspective. Now, if you decide that you're just going to do it your way, Make a decision for what you think is best and stick to it. It won't be easy. Right? This whole machine is designed so that it won't be easy. It's designed so that you will always be pushed and guilt-tripped and sort of edged back in toward the faith. Come back to the fold, prodigal son. That kind of thing. But it doesn't mean they're right or that you're wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean that your life is theirs to lead. You are not a marionette on the string. You are a human being. And if you are a free thinker, I'm honestly delighted about the fact that this will be a child that is taught how to think and not what to think and won't be guilt-tripped for carving a path of his own or her own. 
whose life will be celebrated. And you guys can celebrate differences as well as the things you have in common. That would be my hope. I mean, the people all screaming at the radio right now, I have a feeling they're like me. They'd like to see you just say, screw you. (laughs) You know, this is my life. It's not your life. It's my son, my daughter, not yours. This is my decision, my partner and I's decision, not yours. And if you can't accept it, there's the door. That's what, in my gut, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's easy to say it that way, but whenever you're close to people, whenever you do have close family ties and a strong family unit, and I understand, well, it's not that easy. My heart goes out to you, my friend. But, you know, I hope that you have a wonderful and happy life with your partner and uh, all my best for the future for you. I had Carl send me a message. It was actually a link to an article in The Onion. Now, we did an Onion article, was it last week or the week before? about the uh, right to die movement and how we aren't allowed to die until God's finished toying with us. Well, I guess that must have struck a nerve because people are sending me stuff from The Onion all the time. Well, Carl sent me one, and the uh, title of the article is Horribly Awkward First Sexual Encounter Worth the Wait for Christian Newlyweds. Now, this is an older article. It looks like it's posted 1999. But I'll go ahead and read it to you. Typical stuff from The Onion, right? Typical satire. It says this, Charleston, South Carolina. John and Linda McHugh joined in holy matrimony Sunday before friends, family, and their Lord at Holy Christ Almighty Lutheran Church, said the incredibly awkward wedding night consummation of their love was well worth the wait. Now, they got a photograph of two very fresh-faced young newlyweds here as part of the article. I'm so glad we waited until we got married. It made it so much more special, said the 26-year-old Linda, who was, quote, pretty sure John's penis penetrated her vaginal opening during the brief, fumbling lovemaking session. I can't imagine what a letdown our first sexual experience would have been if we'd done it at some point during our five years of dating. John, 27, agreed, quote, As I prepared, sweat-drenched and terror-struck, to insert my semi-erect penis into my petrified new bride, I couldn't help but think what a precious, magical moment it was. Then, as Linda started to cry out from the anticipation of pain from the first-ever breaching of her tightly constricted vaginal walls, a tear of joy streamed down my cheek. According to the devout Lutherans, after retiring to their bridal suite at the Charleston Marriott East, Linda decided to initiate the evening of romance and dread by excusing herself to the bathroom, where she spent approximately an hour changing into the floor-length cotton nightgown she'd purchased especially for the occasion. Recalled John, when I saw Linda emerge from the bathroom of vision and billowing opaque cloth, her head and hands peeking tantalizingly from the tight collar and cuffs, the moment we first fell in love came rushing back to me in a wave of adoration and fear. After an estimated 45 minutes spent in prayer and devotionals to ensure the smoothest possible act of coitus, John made sure the windows and doors were all securely locked and that all window shades and blinds were closed. Then he reached to his nightstand to turn out the lights to contribute to the feeling of romance and, quote, because Linda refused to let me touch her nightgown until the room was completely dark, unquote. 
Trembling in giddy anticipation and fright, the longtime couple climbed under the sheets and blankets where John took his place on top of his blushing, sobbing bride. As with millions of young newlyweds who haven't yet had sex, John said, there was some nervousness and confusion at first, but after a couple of minutes, we figured out that it would be easier if Linda separated her legs to facilitate entry. Penile insertion was somewhat complicated by John's refusal to assist the navigation process by touching himself, an act the Bible strictly prohibits. But a few more minutes of unsteady shifting and jabbing enabled his penis to, quote, almost certainly, unquote, enter Linda. Having at last achieved probable sexual congress, the couple was brought to new heights of nervous, clumsy passion. As I ran my trembling hands over John's rigid shoulders, Linda said, I said a prayer of thanksgiving to our Lord Jesus Christ for giving us the strength to wait for this wonderful, fulfilling moment. It certainly was every bit as special as I'd hoped. Added Linda, I'm sure the first time isn't anywhere near as magical for all those young people who don't save themselves for marriage. Now I know why God wanted us to wait. As the sexual act wore on, Linda said it grew gloriously tolerable, describing the experience as endurable beyond my wildest dreams. Toward the end, she said, I was almost relaxed enough to enjoy myself, and then, of course, John ejaculated. Linda declined to elaborate on her new husband's sexual climax, but said, I can definitely say that the encounter, which yesterday would have been an unforgivable sin in the eyes of God, was noticeably pleasurable and probably even somewhat erotic in nature. John agreed wholeheartedly, calling their wedding night union the most exciting minutes of my life. Immediately after finishing, the newlyweds took turns showering. As for the future of the couple's sex life, John said he's full of hope. I'd like to maybe try actually touching Linda's vagina with my hand at some point, he said. Then again, I don't want to rush things. Also, I've heard that the vagina kind of smells bad. I certainly hope the Lord will now bless us with a child after this wonderful night, Linda said. If not, we may be forced to repeat this beautiful experience. And the onion strikes again, right? <laughs> Okie dokie, let's move on, shall we? Andrew sent me uh, something to read from Shane. Is it Koisan? K-O-Y-C-Z-A-N. Forgive me if I mispronounced it. I'm unfamiliar with the author. Um, but the piece is called Instructions for a Bad Day. Andrew said, this piece has helped me through quite a lot of difficult points in my life, and it possesses a very positive and secular message to it. I hope you and the listeners enjoy it as much as I do. Okay. Here's how it reads. Instructions for a bad day. There will be bad days. Be calm. Loosen your grip. Opening each palm slowly now. Let go. Be confident. Know that now is only a moment, and that if today is as bad as it gets, understand that by tomorrow, today will have ended. Be gracious. Accept each extended hand offered to pull you back from the somewhere you cannot escape. 
Be diligent. Scrape the gray sky clean. Realize every dark cloud is a smokescreen meant to blind us from the truth. And the truth is, whether we see them or not, the sun and moon are still there, and always there is light. Be forthright. Despite your instinct to say, it's all right, I'm okay, be honest. Say how you feel without fear or guilt, without remorse or complexity. Be lucid in your explanation. Be sterling in your oppose. If you think for one second, no one knows what you've been going through. Be accepting of the fact that you're wrong. That the long-drawn and heavy breaths of despair have at times been felt by everyone. That pain is part of the human condition. And that alone makes you a legion. We hungry underdogs, we risers with dawn, we dismissers of odds, we blessers of on... We will station ourselves to the calm. We will hold ourselves to the steady. Be ready, player one. Life is going to come at you armed with hard times and tough choices. Your voice is your weapon, your thoughts ammunition. There are no free extra men. Be aware that as the instant now passes, it exists now as then. So be a mirror reflecting yourself back. And remembering the times when you thought all of this was too hard and you'd never make it through. Remember the times you could have pressed quit, but you hit continue. Be forgiving. Living with the burden of anger is not living. Giving your focus to wrath will leave your entire self absent of what you need. Love and hate are beasts, and the one that grows is the one you feed. Be persistent. Be the weed growing through the cracks in the cement, beautiful, because it doesn't know it's not supposed to grow there. Be resolute. Declare what you accept is true in a way that envisions the resolve with which you accept it. If you're having a good day, be considerate. A simple smile could be the first aid kit that someone has been looking for. If you believe with absolute honesty that you're doing everything you can, do more. There will be bad days, times when the world weighs on you for so long it leaves you looking for an easy way out. There will be moments when the drought of joy seems unending, instances spent pretending that everything is all right when it is clearly not. Check your blind spot. See that love is still there. Be patient. Every nightmare has a beginning, but every bad day has an end. Ignore what others have called you. I am calling you friend. Make us comprehend the urgency of your crisis. Silence left to its own devices breeds silence. So speak and be heard. One word after the next, express yourself and put your life in the context. If you find that no one is listening, be loud, make noise, stand and poise and be open. Hope in these situations is not enough and you will need someone to lean on. In the unlikely event that you have no one, look again. Everyone is blessed with the ability to listen. The deaf will hear you with their eyes. The blind will see you with their hands. Let your heart fill their newsstands. Let them read all about it. Admit to the bad days, the impossible nights. Listen to the insights of those who've been there but come back. They will tell you. You can stack misery. You can pack despair. You can even wear your sorrow. 
but come tomorrow you must change your clothes. Everyone knows pain. We are not meant to carry it forever. We were never meant to hold it so closely. So be certain in the belief that what pain belongs to now will belong soon to then. That when someone asks you, how is your day? Realize that for some of us, it's the only way we know how to say, be calm, loosen your grip, opening each palm, slowly now, let go. Again, that is called The Instructions for a Bad Day by Shane Koizen, K-O-Y-C-Z-A-N. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing that for the broadcast today. Really good stuff. Jackie sent me a personal email and said this, I was born only 18 months after my brother Randy. From my first day in the world, he was my buddy. We spent many happy childhood hours together. In our teens, he became even more a comrade and confident. He was my closest and dearest friend. Recently, he found out that I no longer share his religious faith. He emailed me to tell me that I am his enemy now and to let me know what awaits me in hell. He said, quote, Wait until you scream until you're sure you can scream no longer, only to realize you just got started. You will gnaw your tongue off time and again because your new body will continually regenerate its lost members so that your death and dying and torment may continue forever. You'll dig your fingers in your eyes and rip them out of their sockets a million times just to buy a moment's distraction from the pain. In horror, you'll know within the first few minutes that you cannot kill yourself because it will only take minutes for you to try suicide multiple times over. But that won't stop you. You will keep trying and you will keep failing. No one will ever think of you again. You will die forever in eternal agony. Unquote. Jackie says, I get a sense of him relishing the graphic horror of his conjured vision and rubbing his hand together in anticipation of my torment. However, the cruelty of his words is not the worst of it. He further told me he wants nothing more to do with me for the rest of his life. It's been 11 years since our whole family had been together. I traveled to Texas to see our parents every couple of years, but Randy, who also lives in Texas, refuses to see me. Our mother has a heart condition and is not in the best of health. She said she just wants the whole family to be together again, but he won't join us there, not even to give our mother that happiness. Some say let the religious alone with their silly beliefs. They're not really hurting anyone. Then why does this hurt so much? Randy calls me his enemy, but why do I still feel a love and a longing for a relationship with a brother I love dearly, and why is there a break in my heart that will not mend? Jackie. I can't escape the thought that he doesn't deserve you, Jackie. He doesn't deserve a position in your life. Friends act like friends. Family acts like family. Who would write such a, a horrible, cruel, unbelievably inappropriate letter? to someone they genuinely loved or cared about. He's not writing that to you because he loves you. Why would someone even write in the way that relishes? I mean, I see what you're talking about. 
You know, he was almost like Dante. You know, it's like he's, he's more interested in painting the picture than warning you. I've adopted a philosophy in my own life. I don't know if it's a good one. I don't know if it's a right one, Jackie. But I've adopted a philosophy that is kind of a one-line, almost a fortune cookie philosophy, maybe. It's, it's this. It, it's what do they bring to my life that's worth having? That's sort of become the acid test for me. Not meaning, what can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? That's not it. It's, do you bring goodness into my life? Do you bring joy and laughter and positive things and support? Do you build me up? Do you make my life better? What do you bring to my life that's worth having? And I had this thought, I don't know, it's been probably over a year ago, when I was going through some similar conversations, not as intense as this letter, with people who claim a position of importance in your life. We're friends. We're family. We've known each other for years. And I think, is that really an excuse for someone to behave horribly, inappropriately, to inject negativity into your life? I don't think so. What does your brother bring to your life that's worth having? And the ache, in my opinion, the ache that you feel in the loss of that relationship speaks to the fact that you are a much better person than he is. If it was me, we were just talking over a beer and I was a friend giving advice, I would say, cut that cord and walk away and be happy without guilt, without much remorse. You're not losing anything but a chain around your neck. Family acts like family and maybe one day he will realize what he has lost. And not being able to have a relationship with you and pledging the allegiance to to hellfire, right? To heaven and hell, angels and demons and God and Satan. If he's more in love with that and he's more allegiant to that, he does not deserve you. What does he bring to your life that's worth having? That's the first and only thing that really comes to my mind. My heart just breaks over it. When you see... And when you see the excuse that religious belief seems to give people in treating each other so horribly, oh, I'm doing not love. I wouldn't say this except it's in love. That's a cop-out. It's like that Dilbert cartoon, the one that said, you can say anything as horrible as you want to anyone as long as you preface it with, with all due respect. <laughs> you can go up to someone and say, with all due respect, you are the worst person in the world, right? Well, it's okay as long as you start with, with all due respect. Well, that's the equivalent of, I say this in love, out of Christian love, Jesus' love, Christ's love. I say this in love. I'm saying this because I love you. Now I'm going to say something hateful. It's a cop-out. Jackie, you got family, all right? Just remember that. You got family here. A couple more before we call it a night here. Uh, an email from Cindy says, I'm a 53-year-old woman. I live in a small rural town in Texas. I was raised in the Catholic Church, attended parochial school, and lived in a predominantly Catholic community. I knew from a very young age that there was something nuts about religion. I told a large group of relatives at a family gathering that I didn't believe in God when I was six years old. 
I never had a spiritual experience. I obsessed over why I had no faith. My mother is a kind and loving woman, but I'm so angry that any time I questioned my inability to find or feel the presence of God, I failed. My mother would tell me, faith is not a feeling, just go through the motions and faith will come. It never did. I tried everything, from the Assembly of God Church to Transcendental Meditation and back to Catholicism. I spent years in therapy and on several occasions was admitted to psychiatric wards. About ten years ago, I came across a Showtime special. It was Julia Sweeney's one-woman show called Letting Go of God. I could relate to Julia's story. She'd been raised Catholic and spent years on a quest to find God. I cried for hours after watching that show. Then I went searching for more information. I discovered Hitchens and Harris and Dawkins. I discovered science and began to see the universe in its amazing totality. I felt like for the first time in my life that the chains that had encircled my mind had fallen away. I was able to let it all go. I cried for the little girl shaking with fear in a confessional. I cried for having exposed my own children to religion, and I cried with relief that my long nightmare was finally over. My intuition had been right all along. I really want to let anyone out there having doubts to know it's okay to let it all go. Yes, it is frightening, but it's also new and exciting. It will open up your life to many amazing possibilities. My biggest regret is that it took me so long to break away from the idea of a deity. If you are on the fence, choose reason and logic. You'll never regret this decision. Look above you and around you. You are part of the human species living on a tiny speck of dust in a vast and infinite cosmos. Make your time here a mission of goodness and love. Your mind is bound by nothing. Beautifully written, Cindy. Thank you so much. I'm going to close tonight's broadcast with something suggested by one of our listeners, Gary, who sent in an email that said, you have the voice of an orator, so I thought you'd be the perfect choice to read some of the commentary of the great orator, Robert G. Ingersoll. Oh, I love Ingersoll's stuff. One of the most quotable free thought icons ever. He has probably one of my favorite lines. The more false we destroy, the more room we make for the true. That's what I often will tell people when they say, well, why do you speak out against religion? If you don't hold to deity, if you don't believe in God, why bother with all this fighting against religion? Why do you care what other people think? And I genuinely hold to the more false we destroy, the more room we make for the true. We have to debunk the bunk so we can support the stuff that is actually real and right. He sent me a link to Robert Green Ingersoll's What I Want for Christmas, just in time for the holidays. I'll read it for you here. It goes like this. If I had the power to produce exactly what I want for next Christmas, I would have all the kings and emperors resign and allow the people to govern themselves. I would have all the nobility crop their titles and give their lands back to the people. I would have the Pope throw away his tiara and take off his sacred vestments and admit that he is not acting for God, is not infallible, but is just an ordinary Italian. I would have all the cardinals, archbishops, bishops, priests, and clergymen admit that they know nothing about theology, nothing about hell or heaven, nothing about the destiny of the human race, nothing about devils or ghosts, gods or angels. 
I would have them tell all their flocks to think for themselves, to be manly men and womanly women, and to do all in their power to increase the sum of human happiness. I would have professors in colleges, all the teachers in schools of every kind, including those in Sunday schools, agree that they would teach only what they know, that they would not palm off guesses as demonstrated truths. I would like to see all the politicians changed to statesmen, to men who long to make their country great and free, to men who care more for public good than private gain, men who long to be of use. I would like to see all the editors of papers and magazines agree to print the truth and nothing but the truth, to avoid all slander and misrepresentation, and to let the private affairs of the people alone. I would like to see drunkenness and prohibition both abolished. I would like to see corporal punishment done away with in every home, in every school, in every asylum, reformatory, and prison. Cruelty hardens and degrades. Kindness reforms and ennobles. I would like to see the millionaires unite and form a trust for the public good. I would like to see a fair division of profits between capital and labor, so that the toiler could save enough to mingle a little June with the December of his life. I would like to see an international court established in which to settle disputes between nations, so that armies could be disbanded and the great navies allowed to rust and rot in perfect peace. I would like to see the whole world free. Free from injustice free from superstition. This will do for next Christmas. The following Christmas, I may want more. Robert Green Ingersoll From the Arena, Boston, December 1897 Next week, we're going to talk about the end of the world. What if tomorrow was your last day on Earth? What if there was 24 hours left? And what if you could go anywhere or do almost anything on planet Earth for your final day? How would you react to the news? And what would you do with your final hours on Earth? Kind of a reflective show next week. So submit your stories, your perspectives, what you would do if tomorrow was the last day on Earth. Send those via email to podcast at thethinkingatheist.com. Dot com. Another huge thanks out to EvolveFish.com for sponsoring today's broadcast. And sometime this week, drop by and check out the rollout of the brand new redesigned website, EvolveFish.com. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more thethinkingatheist.com As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.